spending our lives preparing to be martyrs for God in the end time and killed in fire by the Antichrist and memorizing the Bible and uh, constantly, constantly prepared for sort of the outside world to come in and raid us. Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, creative, and thoughtful leaders who are radically changing the way we think about what's possible in our lives. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our music is compliments of Judy Banker from her forthcoming CD, Buffalo Motel, which will be available in January of 2020. Judy is also a guest on the show, so check out her podcast interview. It's really lovely. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, I have my little Jack Russell Terrier Sparky sitting right beside me, so let's begin. Our guest today is Daniela Mestinek Young, who is an author, a TEDx speaker, and a culture hacker. Daniela was born and raised a third-generation member of the infamous religious cult, the Children of God, known for promoting religious prostitution, pedophilia for God, and the end of the world. At 15, she escaped that life, moving to America and eventually becoming a U.S. Army captain. She served as part of the first group of women to conduct deliberate ground combat operations with all-male troops troops deployed twice to Afghanistan and received the Presidential Volunteer Service Medal from President Obama personally. And she's working on a forthcoming memoir, Uncultured. Welcome to the show, Daniela. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with um, your life in the cult. And I know that you were born into the cult. I wonder if you could give us just a little idea of what day-to-day life was like for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was institutional, I think is the, the best way to describe it. So, you know, institutional, very almost militarily formed group where there was a hierarchy, there was a senior leader, David Berg, who was the prophet of God and, you know, literally convinced 10,000 people. So for, for 40 years, the group was about 10,000 people strong, but it's estimated that a hundred thousand people passed through kind of full-time membership of this group. And full-time membership meant you left everything behind, you moved to different countries, you changed your name, you lived in communes, and you gave all your worldly possessions to the group, and you just, you know, lived for God. Um, And it, you know, sort of started off as this idea of, you know, brotherhood and love and God. And then, like many of these isolated groups do, it sort of became worse and worse. And so, you know, for kids growing up, 
Um, I mean, definitely it's different depending on who you talk to and where they lived and what time they were growing up. So, you know, for my mom, who was also born and raised in the cult, a little bit of a different life than for me. But, you know, we were we were dealing with kind of this very strong group structure where, you know, usually we lived with our parents, though not always. But I saw, you know, I saw my parents for an hour a day in the evenings, uh, kind of like visitation. And the rest of the day I was in groups with other children my age. You know, we lived with 50 to 200 people and we didn't really do school. We sometimes had workbooks, but we generally, you know, didn't believe in education because the world was going to end. We were spending our lives preparing to be martyrs for God in the end time and killed in fire by the Antichrist and memorizing the Bible and uh, constantly, constantly prepared for sort of the outside world to come in and raid us and during my lifetime was when, you know, the, the Waco thing happened and some, mm-hmm. some sort of scary things, you know, and obviously in the seventies you had, uh, sort of Jonestown go wrong and all of this outside attention. And so there was very much this sort of knowledge growing up that like every moment, like the outside world is trying to get us. That sounds so frightening. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, really, really is. And I think, you know, everyone experienced different levels of kind of like sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, and, and the denial of education. But it, it's like the important thing is it all came from this ideology. So, you know, the ideology was essentially like God is love. We show God's love through sex and there's no age. There's no, you know, incest, there's no marriage, (laughs) there's, you know, or I mean, there was marriage, but everyone still, you know, sort of had interactions with everyone else. And even when they tried to come back in and make these rules of like, well, adults and minors is not okay. It was still from this perspective of, well, we still believe that God says all of this is pure. We just know that the outside world doesn't understand it. So, like, mm. and, no oh, and you had no point of reference. It's not like you had the internet where you can say, "Wait, this isn't what I'm hearing in other places in other in other communities." Yeah, and that's you know that's the other thing that it's so hard to kind of describe to people is that when you are a second or third you know generation cult member growing up in this world or even when you're in you know some of these isolated countries that don't have as much progress as we have in the western world right you just you don't have access to other points of view and all you know is what you know so like i was always you know i'm i'm the personality that always questions always thinks about stuff like i was always in trouble my whole life but i didn't know for example that there was an option you know i didn't know there was an option to be like is god is god real um you know i mean i just knew there was like us you know, the 10,000 of us that were God's army that were going to heaven and then the rest of the world. And literally the rest of the world was either sheep or wolves. Like they were either going to convert to our way of thinking or they were the devil. And we were raised to think, you know, Americans were evil, Jews were evil, uh, you know, 
people of color were not that great. Muslims, of course, were evil. And it was just very, you know, even though we were all over the world and we were interacting with all of these cultures and recruiting all of these cultures. Um, but it was very much, you know, you check who you are at the door and you become a part of this group. And then honestly, you know, for, for all of the children, the, the way I describe it now, um, especially being a mother is just, I think the biggest impact of our lives was just, you know, no spontaneous moments of joy. You know, you were, you were standing in lines. You were always, you know, had, <laughs> there's my child in the background. Um, you always had adults that were telling you uh, where to go and what to do. And you never knew if one action was going to get you in trouble or one action was going to be fine. Um, you never knew who around you was going to kind of like inform on you. Um, and so it was very, very, you know, um, obviously, you know, as a psychotherapist, I'm sure, um, very abusive, but very like insidious. And you don't even, I think there's so many of the survivors that have not spent the time sort of thinking about it and processing it and really don't even realize why it was as bad as it was. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about total mind control here, where you, you know, there's not even an opportunity to have any freedom or have any individual thoughts or feelings. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, everything was controlled by the group. I've even thought about how, like, as an adult, having relationships, like, arguing or disagreements or debates are very like hard for a lot of us because we never saw that. Like I never saw mm -hmm. my parents have a disagreement because mm -hmm. you didn't do that. I'm sure they did sometimes behind very closed doors, but mm -hmm. like having any kind of open disagreement was just an invitation for the leaders to come in and tell you what to think um, and any, anyone at any time, if you disagreed, would just say, you know, well, the prophet said, or God said, or God told me. Um, and that was, yeah. that was the end. Do you, um, did you, were you able to form any, uh, positive relationships with your peers? Did you have a sense that there were other kids out there who might be like you? Or were you experiencing this as being, sort of the odd man out all the time? Um, I mean, yes and no. You know, I describe my childhood looking back as very, very lonely. Um, I was, I think I was one of those children that needed, I mean, maybe all, I'm sure all children need affection, you know, but needed like the constant attention from my parents and mental stimulation and all of that. And I just did not have that. And, you know, and then obviously all the confusion that, you know, sexual kinds of affection was also love. Um, so, you know, like sort of not even getting into that, but the definitely feeling isolated in my own head. And then the way it was done, you know, families were, families were broken apart and put together and 
Um, you know, I have 24 siblings from various combinations of families being put together and then taken apart. And we were just sort of moved around at the drop of a hat. And there was always this constant, like, yes, you had friends, but you also never know who's going to kind of like be an informant on you. So it's very much almost like, you know, what you think of if you think of jail or, or prison, you know, or mm-hmm. some kind of institution. Um, you know, on the flip side, I mean, everyone, you know, there was thousands of children and we all had the exact same life. So, you know, there is the side where like, you can look at it and be like, yeah, we always have friends, you know, we always had playmates, we always had um, people that we could connect to. And today, you know, I have you know, we have some, some groups where we all chat and support each other. And it's, mm-hmm. it's great. Like things that most people go to for their siblings, like, Hey, remember when mom and dad did this? Or, Hey, what was this memory of our life? Um, I have hundreds, if not thousands of people that I have that sort of relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, thank, thank goodness. Do you remember, uh, you know, as you were growing up, when it became clear to you that, you were going to have to get out of there? Um, Yes. (laughs) Um, I have several specific moments. Um, The first one, I was about six. And six was kind of the year I was really starting to realize like, okay, there's a world outside that's different than us. It doesn't seem evil. Those children seem happy. Um, And I experienced some moments of just truly horrific uh, isolation and abuse. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I know that if I'm not, you know, in the children of God, or we called it the family, then I'm going to hell. And then I remember thinking to myself, man, hell's going to suck. And I, you know, I didn't like really know how to express it. Or I would say it was even like, too scared to think of it. But I knew like at that moment, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not into this God, I'm not going to do this. Um, But really, my, my big moment was, and and this one I've written quite a bit about was on 9-11. I was in the United States, we had just come to the United States for the first time, I was 14. um, As someone that was raised thinking that she's an American, but, you know, abroad in communes, um, I was, you know, experiencing the biggest culture shock of my life. And then 9-11 happened. And I was surrounded by, you know, other Americans that were thanking God for his just punishment on the wicked. And it was the first time I'd ever seen live news on TV. And so it was kind of this literal outside world coming in to our house. Um, And I remember hearing the term religious extremists and terrorists. And I, you know, obviously when I think back about it now, almost two decades later, it's like it's all come together more coherently. But I definitely remember at 14 being like, Ooh, this religious extremist term like might be talking about mm. us too. You know, like I, 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 I don't think that three thousand people being killed is 
anything to do with any kind of God. And when you're hearing, you know, the way that it's talked about on American television as, you know, these are Muslims, this is a jihad, they're killing us in the name of their God. There was just like so many interesting parallels and crazy parallels. And I kind of describe that now as the, the big crack in the, in the brainwashing for me. Um, And it took me about a year and a half after that to kind of make my break. (laughs) I find it so fascinating that uh, at a very young age, you had a perspective or an awareness that even though you were completely brainwashed, that this doesn't match. There's something wrong here. I don't, you know, it's not congruent. And I don't feel a part of this. Do you have any sense of how you had that ability um, when many, many other of your peers did not? Um, yes, I do. And uh, this is actually probably perfect because this is the Zestful Aging podcast um, <laughs> to talk about, you know, my relationship with age is very interesting and fluid because my mother got pregnant with me when she was 14. Mm. Um, so my mother was born and raised in the cult. My family was very, very high up, very closely connected to the leadership. My grandfather is still the head accountant for the entire cult. Um, And so, oh, and by the way, my father was older than my mother's father. So my father is literally older than my grandfather. Um, Mm. And so first of all, yeah, relationship with There's some problems there. Yeah. Very interesting, very fluid. Um, But I think that So the first, like the older second generation kids that were born into this group, like they were raised in such complete isolation. Most of them literally ended up staying in the cult into their 30s and 40s and raising their own children in the cult. And then as you get into the younger generations, the ones, either the younger second generation or the third generations which I think are the ones that had like either the older siblings or in my case, my mother, who's the age of an older sibling, um, Mm -hmm. kind of helping us see things a little differently. And, you know, very specifically, I, when I was three, my mom was teaching me to read and she told me, you know, Daniela, the only thing you need from the world is for someone to teach you how to read and everything else you can teach yourself. And, you know, she had done that in her life. And I, of course, sort of go on to do that in my life. But that was, you know, when I think about it today, like, that was such an incredibly rebellious thing for her Uh to teach me. She planted a seed of rebellion. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can look back now and sort of see she was doing it her whole life. And in in my teenage years, when I was getting ready to, to leave. And actually at 15, at 16, you would become an adult in the cult. And so at 15, you went through this whole additional year of like additional indoctrination. Um, and during that year, I was like, I need to get away. I don't want to have babies soon. I, Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm done. And I was kind of like launching this whole campaign of rebellious to get myself uh, what they call excommunicated. And it came down to the point where they wanted me gone. They were, you know, threatening to excommunicate me. But also my family was very important. I was the oldest third generation kid still in the group at that time. And it, I think they were starting to realize like, oh, this could be sort of a big scandal. And so Uh they were also trying to kind of reconvert me and pull me back in. And I was naturally wavering, like, and they're, I I tend to get some criticism no matter what I say, if I say I escaped or if I say I got away or if I say I got excommunicated, but you know, it was basically either get with the program, recommit yourself to God and fully buy in or like at 15 years old, there is no life for you here. Everything you know is gone and you're on your own. So when we say you're on your own, it's not like some kids, you know, have difficulty in their families, and there are some support services, Salvation Army, these kinds of things, um, you know, transitional housing. I mean, when, when you say you're on your own, you have nothing. You have, I mean, you have no supports outside the cult. Your parents are in the cult, your peers, your siblings. How did you imagine that was going to go for you? Yeah. And so all my, you know, all my family was in the call. I mean, so many of the the second generations that left went home to live with grandparents. But, you know, my grandparents were helping run the cult. (laughs) Um, I and, and this is where like another point where my mom comes in where I was, I wanted to be gone so bad, but I was scared and I was wavering. And I was kind of like, well, maybe I can just stay. And my mom you know, took me aside where nobody could hear. And she was like, look, I, I had an older stepsister. So her, her husband, still her current husband is 20 years older than her had daughters, pretty much the same age as her. Um, And I had an older stepsister who'd left the cult a few years before, who I met two or three times. And she was, you know, sort of willing to give me a place to crash uh, on a spare mattress in her apartment in Texas. And my mom was like, look, we got you a place, just go. Mm. It must have been confusing for you that while your mom was reinforcing and, and, and supporting your uh, extracting yourself, she was still fully in it. And, you know, uh, she's not saying let's go together. No, and she was... You know, she ended up making her break with it years later, um, I think about a decade later when she was almost 40 um, with eight children and (laughs) the works. Um, But yeah, I mean, definitely confusing. And I literally remember at that time, like the hardest thing for me was feeling like I was letting my parents down. You know, the only thing we were ever raised to be was missionaries for God. Like that is the only option and Mm, everything else. Like you are a backslider and not only are you a backslider, but like you're losing your family forever because they're all going to heaven and you will never see them again. Oh, so my goodness. so the idea of really like, hard. you know, I, I'm trying to think of an adolescent and figuring out like, could this be true? 
is am I giving up my entire life? But no, it doesn't seem real, but it might be. I mean, I'm just trying to understand what was going on in your head as you're making these decisions to leave or not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, looking back now, like, I don't think I ever believed in God. I don't think I ever bought into any of it. Um, I just, didn't have the rhetoric or the ability to kind of say that. And I actually remember in that same conversation with my mom, she was, you know, she was crying. She was upset. She was like, do you at least still believe in Jesus? And I, the only word in my head was just like, no, but I could not say that to her. So of course I was like, yes, I just, you know, I really want to go to high school. That was like, that was my, like my big rebellion was like, I just want to go to high school. Um, but I, I don't feel like I had that fear. I mean, yes, I did, you know, like definitely it was like, well, what if they are right? Right. What if they are right? Mm -hmm. And what if they are all going to heaven and I Mm -hmm. never get to see my family again? But at the same time, I didn't really believe that, you know? And so I just, I don't know. I, I cared more about living a life that I wanted to live Mm -hmm. now than sacrificing everything for some promise of the future, Um, which is sort of what apocalyptic theory is. I see. And so you, how did you actually get physically out of the environment to Texas or, or to your stepsisters? Yeah. My parents took me, um, my, my mom and my dad took me, you know, like it was essentially a point. It was like, okay, like you are, you know, the leadership is like, you are making a decision. You are either will be called partially excommunicated and you need to spend six months sort of in isolation, recommitting to the group or you're gone. And I was like, nope, I'm gone. And so then it was my parents' job to get me out of there. And oh. so they, you know, we took a bus. We were in Mexico at the time. Um, cult commune in Mexico and took a bus up to Texas and dropped me off in Houston with my sister, um, who was 10 years older than me, no high school education, uh, signed a, you know, guardianship paperwork for me. And I, uh, remember I asked for 20 bucks and my mom did not have it. And so I literally, you know, sort of came to America with $0 in my pocket Um, I did have a place to, you know, sort of sleep. Um, And then I was, you know, just, all right, get a job and get enrolled in high school. Which you knew nothing about. It's not even like you had experienced family members getting a job and going to high school. I mean, that's the thing that's so fascinating about this. It's, you know, it's not like, okay, I'm going to Japan and wow, things are different, but they're still doing the same kinds of things I've seen in my family, in my culture. There's education, there's these institutions, there's, you know, I go to the market, I buy the, you know, whatever, I go to the library. You are coming at this as if you were on another planet. (laughs) Yeah, so exactly that. Um, So first of all, yeah, I show up to high school to enroll with my American passport and my social security card, which were the only pieces of documentation I pretty much owned. Um, I... And I was like, okay, I'm here to enroll. I'm, 
you know, about to be 16. And they were like, we can't enroll you in high school because you don't exist. Um, but now that we have all your information, we need to see proof that you're enrolled somewhere in five days or we have to call the cops. Um, and so that was, you know, really fun. And my sister and I, who also, you know, my sister knows nothing about school either. Um, and we have to go all the way up to the city level and basically just beg, like, this is a 15 year old who is begging to go to school. Just Mm -hmm. let her go to school. Um, and I finally get into high school and there's 4,000 students in my, you know, inner city Houston, Texas high school. And exactly what you said. I mean, I was listening to students walking past me having like a discussion, what I would say was kind of a logical debate, you know, going back and forth about something. And I was like, I don't even know how to think that way. And I have been telling people, you know, I had this kind of funny international kid accent and I was telling people that I was from Brazil and I realized like, I'm not from Brazil. I'm from another planet, you know, like exactly what you said. And it was just so very, very hard. (laughs) Hello, Zesties. I want to tell you about one of my all-time favorite exercise and stress reduction tools, which I am really relying on during this quarantine, but I've sung its praises for years. The benefits are seemingly endless. Uh, It's great for toning and strengthening muscles. It improves your lymph system, your metabolism. It helps with joint pain and balance, and it's even used by NASA astronauts because it's such an efficient way to exercise. And if you're older or you're worried about your balance, you can order a stabilizer bar to hang on to. I'm talking about my NEDAC Rebounder mini trampoline. I put on my music and I have my own dance party. Because for me, exercise needs to be fun and invigorating. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Now is not the time for the philosophy of no pain, no gain, because we're in enough pain. This is a way to feel good and energized and have fun. It really does help mood as well. And I like that NEDAC is made in the USA and it is really solid. I've had mine for 15 years and it's still in great shape. The NEDAC Rebounder will help us get through this quarantine in better shape mentally and physically. And there's also a model that folds up if space is an issue. One of my clients puts it on her driveway and uses it while she's watching her kids during the quarantine. Anyway, I can't recommend NEDAC Rebounders enough. They are a worthwhile investment in your health and overwhelm overall well-being, especially now. If you are interested in a mini trampoline, please don't buy a cheap one. Those can be actually dangerous, and it is really worth uh, investing in a good quality one. And right now, if you use the coupon code just for Zestful Aging listeners, the code is Zestful, they are going to include a free cover for you. So go to NEDAC.com. It's N-E-E-D-A-K.com. And if you have any questions, you can contact me at ZestfulAging.com. 
I really am their biggest fan. And so talk to us about how you did it. How did you get through? And I'm thinking also the racial and cultural part where it sounds like you part of the cult was that if you're a different color or a different religion, you're going straight to hell. So now you're surrounded by many, I'm I'm guessing you're saying inner city, I'm guessing there were different cultures, and they don't act like they're worried about going to hell, I'm thinking. I mean, the whole setup, it sounds like uh, the most bizarre, alienating experience. And I'm wondering how you got through each day. Yeah. Um, you know, so in, in the cult, it was interesting because they end up recruiting, like it starts in America, but they end up recruiting people from all around the world. So there was definitely like, there was a lot of racial mixing. There was a lot of, and then they, um, in the seventies, they did this whole, you know, religious prostitution, like using sex as a way to get members or money. Um, and so there was in fact, a lot of racial uh, integration and mixing uh-huh. and all of that, but there was no kind of like culture attached to it. Right. So it was kind of like you, you check all of that at the door and we are all the same. And then there was definitely like taught that like, you know, like Africans were the son of ham and they were evil. And so if you were black, you kind of had like more to atone for. And, um, you know, he hated the Jews. The prophet hated the Jews, even though he was, part Jewish um, because they rejected his, his commune in Israel. And so of course it became, you know, the Jews are the ones that killed Jesus and Catholics were evil and everything. And so the fact of- that Jews, Jesus was Jewish didn't enter into this. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> that was it, okay. There was no logic. Um, uh, okay. But, and so, yes, I mean, definitely being surrounded with, 4,000 students of every, you know, race, gender, color. Um, oh, and, you know, not to mention the super, super homophobia as well in the group. And so now oh. I'm surrounded by, you know, 2003 is a time when you're starting to have some openly gay high school students. And I definitely never seen anything like that before. Um oh. And yeah, it was very, very strange, very, uh, high school for me was two years of kind of just going to school, working 40 hours a week, hanging out mostly with adults. Like the only people that remember me from high school are my teachers. (laughs) Um, And was your stepsister helpful in, in sort of talking and supporting you through this? Um, I mean, yes and no. Like, I owe her a lot from, you know, just the fact that without her, I wouldn't have really have had a chance to get out at 15 with no babies. Um, but she, you know, she mostly lived across town with her then boyfriend, now husband. Um, she was you know, struggling to make it in America with no education and no knowledge of how the world worked and sort of bartended at nights. And it's, you know, she certainly 
is partially responsible for any success that I've had today, but it's not like we were having these intellectual conversations about Mm -hmm. any of this. I mean, it, first of all, she didn't mentor you. It sounds like she provided the basics, but she didn't, there wasn't a lot of mentoring. Yeah. You know, I was still mostly living on my own. Um, her. And did you did you have any practices or any kind of thing that helped you deal with this radical adjustment? I mean, how did you do it? You got up, you just is it sort of one foot in front of the other or do you did you have any ways to I I I'm thinking of just comfort yourself. Just school. Um You know, I think like when I look back, I'm like, I feel like I got pretty lucky that I was so busy surviving. You know, I was working 40 hours a week and trying to do all four years of high school in two years so I could graduate on time. And, and for the first life, like having teachers that were interested in me being successful and, you know, the ability to kind of get affirmation that way. And I just, I mean, for so literally two years of high school and then four years of college, I mean, I was just obsessed with being like the hands down number one best student in everything that I could possibly be. Um, Mm -hmm. I couldn't, like, for example, I couldn't imagine why anyone would ever skip school. I don't think I skipped a class till my senior year of college. Um, Did you have a reputation in school as being the girl from the cult? Um, no, I didn't talk about it much. Uh, I definitely didn't even use the word cult in high school. Well, I used it one time. We had to write an essay for college and which I didn't think I was going to be able to go to right away because of course I had no money. And the essay prompt was, what makes you different? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And I wrote, you know, literally wrote my way into college. um, And I wrote this essay called, I think it was called A Cult Stole My Childhood. But that was the first time I had ever referred to it as a cult. And I remember, like, shaking, just writing it down. Just, you know. Um, So we, you know, and like, mostly through college, it was... And, and most of the children of God survivors still do this today. They're, you know, I was, I was born abroad. My parents were missionaries. Um, third culture kid is a very popular term with us. You know, we traveled all over. Um, and then throughout sort of high school and college, I was learning that like simple answers are just best. You know, when people ask you where you're from, just say Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people ask you, gosh, how many siblings was just hard because even my simplest answer is 14. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, But I always learned to ask people first questions, you know, so that it didn't always turn into kind of like, you know, like you're the cult girl that ends the that ends the conversation uh, Mm -hmm. about anything else. So then you got into college and um, and and then you decide to join the army. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> uh, not just join the army, commission as an officer into the army. Um, mm-hmm. You know, interestingly enough, I, so at the time I was graduating from college and I literally was like, 
oh my God, I, I did it. I can't believe I did it. I kind of felt like I won the lottery of birth because, you know, my, my family is Slovakian, immigrated to America. My mother was like the daughter, second generation immigrants born in Dallas and then, but in a cult and then taken abroad for the rest of her life. And then I was born abroad to a a single mother. And like, I just happened to have an American passport, which allowed me to kind of come here and, you know, pull myself up by my Mm -hmm. bootstraps. There were opportunities for you. Right. And I had so many other friends from the cult that didn't have that. And so that literally staying in the cult was their best option for having a life. Um, You know, think of people that like would just be on the street in India um, if they didn't, you know, if they weren't part of this kind of commune. And so I felt really lucky. And that was at the time, that was my reason. I was like, well, I need to give something back. And I found out about this officer program and I give them three years and they, pay me well. Um, and not to mention I was graduating in 2009 with a honors degree in English literature. So wasn't a lot of people paying a lot of money during an economic crisis for that. But a second Lieutenant in the army pays you $45,000 and gives you a lot of training and skills and health insurance. Yeah. But now when I look back at it, you know, I, I mean, I got lucky that I sort of like, stumbled from the cult into institutions of education where people tell you where to go and what to do. And then from there, I came up with this idea to join the army. And when I look back, like, I don't think I would have had any idea how to like go get a job, like how to create a life for myself without this kind of group structure around me. An insti- I mean, that's what you knew is an institution. And it sounds like you kn- that's, you needed that kind of structure, at least in the beginning, to help you um, develop. Yeah, 100%. Um, and it's, you know, it's actually very common that people will join multiple cults in their life, um, or that veterans, for example, will get out of the military because they don't want to be there anymore and then go back in because that group structure and that reinforcement of sort of group norms and culture and feeling like you have a purpose and a place to be is such a strong driving force. And I literally, you know, will never forget standing in the first day of basic training and there's this this like scene that they do where you have to hold this 50 pound duffel bag above your head for like two to three hours. It's physically impossible. Nobody can do it. You drop it. They yell, you pick it back up. They somehow always arrange for it to be raining. Um, (laughs) You know, and I am standing there going, Oh my God, I just joined another cult. You know, it's my literal thought. And it's, you know, not as different as we like to think it is. I mean, I, I truly believe that group behavior is its own thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And so from what 
I can see you wildly uh, succeeded uh, in the army and that you you did that intensive accomplishment thing that you that you did the moment you walked into high school. Is that how it was for you that you were so focused on success? I mean, 100%. I was, you know, I from the age of 15 to 25, I ran my whole life, like 10,000 people are waiting and hoping that I will fail so that they can be right. And I will not give them the satisfaction. So you're constantly proving yourself and sort of there's the shadow of, you know, she's not going to make it. Yeah. And everything that I ever did was like, I have to be the best. Um, and that was true in the military. And so I, you know, in college, it was like, I'm not just the valedictorian, but like the dean of students called me and was like, where is your application to speak at graduation? Why is it not on my desk? The deadline is uh, passed. Uh, um, and it was kind of like, I was the only option in their minds. And in the art, so then when I go to join the army, it's like, okay, now they care about physical stuff. So I better, you know, quit smoking, which I'd done for a decade and start getting into physical shape. And I, I did. And turns out when you show up to the army and you are a little blonde girl that can run a five minute mile, it's really, really good for your career. <laughs> good, but also, I, you know, I don't know because I haven't been in the service, but I suspect there might be some feelings of competition and um, that, that there might be some feelings that are not necessarily positive and encouraging. Oh, Absolutely. Um, and especially when it comes to, to male female dynamics and even also female female dynamics. Um, and so I, you know, at basic training when I had just literally taught myself how to run and run fast and I'm looking at this as success story, right? Resilience. Like you can do anything you set your mind to and the other women in basic training hate me because mm -hmm. I'm making them look bad. So then again, I think of this theme of being lonely and isolated where you're in this group, but people aren't, you're not feeling connected. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, this is kind of where uh, my TED talk talks about, you know, I, so outwardly I'm super successful. I'm this, I'm this Lieutenant in the army. I am wildly respected by my peers, by my bosses, you know, everyone wants me to be the next general in, in 30 years. And meanwhile, I'm like constantly, constantly battling suicidal ideology. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, when I came home from my first deployment, which is a really hard time, no matter who you are, I remember literally I had to put myself on a program of like, okay, you've done it. You've achieved success. Like there's, right? Like you're not the little cult girl anymore. Like you're, you're good. You've checked the block. Now I need to focus on like relationships with people. Mm -hmm. Um, because mm -hmm. I had this moment of like, I've done it. I'm successful, but everyone hates me. 
Uh. And I don't, you know, I've been telling myself for so long, like, it's just because I'm too different. It's just not fair. It's just because they're jealous. And I actually had a, a good friend sort of tell me, you know, Daniela, get over yourself. You're not as different as you think you are. Um, and that was really, really important in my life to realize that, like, I had been sort of giving myself permission to always be isolated and even, you know, with suicidal ideology, like, of course, I'm a mess, you know, I grew up in a cult. And of course, nobody can understand me. And of course, nobody can ever be my friend. And to eventually kind of realize like, no, everybody goes through hard things. And everybody experiences the same sort of, you know, basic emotions when they're going through these super hard things. And human beings. So like you're a part of it. You, you're a human. And that, that, um, there's certain things that are givens and we all share those. Yeah. I think human beings all share the same emotions, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, somebody, when I decided to start being a speaker, somebody said to me, you know, Daniela with like cult stuff and army stuff, like so interesting, but I don't think like, a nice girl from Milwaukee that has never had anything bad happen to her can possibly relate to you. And by that time, I was sort of like, I mean, I don't think that there's anyone on earth that has never had anything bad happen to them. It might not be people hear my story and they definitely feel that, oh, well, my life is nothing compared to that. Uh, So, You know, it was interesting for me kind of to boil it down to like, look, almost every woman in the world could close her eyes and imagine a time when she felt lonely and afraid and wished that she had a fairy godmother to take her away. Was the me was the me too movement helpful in recognizing what so many women have been through and not given voice to? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And you know, for me in this most recent phase of my life, which kind of yeah started right around me too, and everyone's speaking out, and every time I give a talk or tell my story, I mean, every time other women are like, "Gosh, this reminds me of." this experience that I had, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the, the book that I'm working on now is really kind of that. Like we, you know, I was a part of these extreme groups, but we are all a part of groups. We are all socialized by our experiences and we all go through sort of, you know, these traumas and these recoveries. And, uh, you know, I think these are concepts that every human being on earth can relate to. So this is a very different kind of mindset where, you know, it's no longer about the little cult girl going to high school and achieving and doing things the other kids aren't doing, working 40 hours, all of this focus on hyperachieving. There's this more like, I belong to the world now. And, you know, I'm no longer the weird kid who other people just can't imagine, you know, oh, you know, I don't even know what that's like. It's weird. It's bizarre. Um, there's a sense of no, actually, 
you and I know what it's like to be a woman, uh, you know, growing up, having children and living life. Yeah, you know, and the the interesting thing with culture is if you're isolated in your culture, you think you are so different from everyone else. But mm-hmm. the reality is we are far more similar than we are different. Mm-hmm. And so uh, sort of a benefit for me was, yeah, once I learned to, you know, moderate a little bit of my brashness and be able to relate to people at this basic human level. Now, like the whole world is full of people that I can relate to like any age, any culture, anywhere they live. Wow. That's amazing. So how, how old were you and how did this kind of present itself? Was it little by little or one day when your friend said, you know, get over yourself. (laughs) Not my favorite expression, but, you know, kind of opened your eyes. How did this happen? Was it a a pretty abrupt change of view? Or little by little, did you experiment and see how you could connect with others? Yeah, um, I definitely will say it was little by little, you know, like looking back. And as I've been asked the question, like, what was the moment? Like, that was the moment. And, you know, the reason he said it that way was because we were all soldiers and that's just sort of how we Uh, talk to each other. Talk, yeah, yeah. Um, But it, yeah, I mean, it it took me a lot of time and it took me a lot of effort, you know, to really sort of study relationships and study, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time now studying socialization and how we are all impacted by what we experience. And I think that has allowed me to see people not as binary, you know, like they're either good or bad or friends or not friends, and just really try to understand like, how you think this way and why you think this way is so much more interesting to me than us all being you know, from the same perspective. Which makes it really tricky, because if you have that view, then being a combat soldier becomes very problematic. Um, yes and no. You know, I think uh, we're in such an interesting time in in the world and in the military, because I think we've all been operating, in my opinion, it's this industrial age hangover that Everyone needs to be the same. Everyone needs to be a piece of the machine. And that creates the best outcomes. And now we're starting to realize, even in the military, that like everyone being an individual actually might create better outcomes. Now, military culture is still set up to operate as everyone not being an individual. But it's it's starting to change. And that was kind of what we really saw with placing women into combat was, you know, we were still, like, trust me, we were still operating under, like, you have to be as strong and as fast and as bad as the men. Mm -hmm. Um, But we started very quickly to realize that it's all of the things about being a woman that make you useful. You know, they have as many big, strong, tough men as they need, they need us to be women 
on the battlefield mm-hmm. and noticed, you know, we went into a village once where I noticed that the men noticed that the ground was disturbed, but I noticed that there were no children. And together we understood very quickly that there was a bomb in the road. And that was super beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so see. bringing different skills to it. Yeah. And I, I think that for me all along the way, you know, being formerly so brainwashed and such a part of such a strong culture and then coming out of that and then going into my actual job in the military was the intelligence officer. So it was my job to study the terrorists and the religious extremists and think like the enemy so that I could then advise the commanders on how the enemy was going to try to kill them. And you and do you think that because you had lived in a cult, you understood better what religious extremism might look like and what actions they might take? Oh, 100%. And also, because I had spent so much of my life in third world countries, I think Mm -hmm. I could just see very differently, you know, so for example, in Afghanistan, like, Afghanistan is the most war-torn country in the history of the world. It is called the Graveyard of Empires. And your children getting blown up on the street is a normal fact of life for every Afghan and has been for centuries. You know, your your kid just dying violently. And so the way they relate is different. But Americans would see it as like, oh, his kid got blown to pieces And three hours later, he's here asking the Americans for compensation. He's obviously subhuman. You know, like that's sort of what they would jump to immediately. And not only is that like not fair, right? If you understand it in the context of like just even the way that we connect with and love our children can be first world privilege in many ways. But also if you think that you're enemy or the people that you are supposed to be fighting for in the case of the Afghans are subhuman. Like you are not looking at it from the right perspective, Uh, you know, underestimating Uh the enemy is almost always what gets you killed. And so I think that in my case, yes, the ability to be like, yeah, this is a totally different way of thinking. Yeah. I think it's pretty messed up. However, I can, dig into it and try to see it from their perspective um, without dehumanizing them. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if you boil it down to the very, very basics, I mean, we call terrorists religious extremists because they are willing to die for an idea. Well, so is every American soldier willing to die for an idea. Mm -hmm. And so... Of course, I believe with all of my being that we are on the right side of history in this case. But I don't know that for sure. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I even think like trying to determine like right versus wrong is kind of gets it clouded when you're talking about the actual analysis of just like, how do they think this way? Why do they think this way? Mm -hmm. And... If you can understand why good people get to the point where they end up believing that pedophilia is God's will, I feel like you can understand anything. Right. 
Daniela, this is such an incredible story of resilience, and I am so honored to be able to speak with you today about your life and what you've learned. And just really, I think you've provided such a, an inspiration for all of us um, who have, we've all gone through times that have been very dark, but I, I feel like you've really offered this example of how we can get through it. Yeah, thank you so much um, for having me. This is a, a great conversation. And I, I agree with you. You know, I think that no matter what you've been through, you know, we can, we can all get through everything. And I think that when you are in those really dark moments, like connecting with people, with yeah. other people who have had their own dark moments, whatever those are, um, can be extremely, extremely like necessary for survival. I agree with you with all of my heart. And I want to give people a place to find you because I know they're going to want to learn more about you and the incredible contributions you've been able to make, not even in spite of, but I think because of what you've been through, that you've been able to sort of translate some of that trauma into a, a special way of seeing the world and understanding human behavior so where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is daniellamestanekyoung.com. Mm -hmm. And Mestanek is spelled M-E-S-T-Y-A-N-E-K. Mm -hmm. um, and then that is where, that's kind of my author page where hopefully very soon next year, more information about when my book will be available, will come up. Um, okay. But people can sign up for, you know, drop their name and email there for updates on the book. And then I am, you know, very active on Twitter at Daniela M. Young, on LinkedIn, Daniela Mestinek Young. And okay. I love engaging with people. I love chatting with people. I love hearing other people's stories. So okay. that is where you can find me. That is wonderful. And we will look for your book. And I think we should talk about having you back on when the book comes out and we can have a follow up conversation because I feel like I could talk to you for days. And it's just it's so interesting and, and impressive. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would love to come back on after the book comes out. Okay. Thank you so much, Daniela. And um I, I think we'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. 
If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.